Welcome to Inside the Treehouse, where great educators love to come and hang out. My name is Jeff Jones, and I'm the host of Inside the Treehouse, and this is sponsored by Solution Tree. Today, we've got a phenomenal guest uh, who is a Marzano Resources author and associate, as is her husband. Uh, Michelle Finn is our guest, and her husband is Doug. Uh, I could go on and on about her bio here, but uh, much like my kids, uh, I don't have a favorite, but they're all unique. And I don't have favorites and authors, but they're all unique. And Michelle has some of the most unique experiences of anybody that I've ever interviewed and anybody I know for that matter. So without further ado, let's introduce Michelle to Inside the Treehouse. Let's get her in here. So today's guest on Inside the Treehouse is Michelle Finn. Welcome, Michelle, to Inside the Treehouse. Thank you. Michelle is a uh, uh, an associate and an author from Marzano Resources, which is uh, a sister company with Solution Tree, as I think all of you know. And Michelle and her husband, Doug, live in rural Maine, which we're going to hear a little bit about in the future. But they have a home that was built, a farmhouse that was built in 1820 uh, that they have renovated over the years together. Uh, Michelle has a K-10 classroom experience. She's worked at, since 2004 to design and implement CompCity-based personalized learning systems, which is huge in education today. Other professional development that she's done is building student agencies, developing personalized strategic implementation plans, implementing standard, uh, standards-based instruction and grading practices, and all sorts of areas involved with the new art and science of teaching. You have, she has co-authored a handbook of personalized competency-based education, which came out in 2017 from Marzano and scheduling for personalized competency-based education, which came out in 2020. So Michelle, welcome to Inside the Treehouse. Yeah, it's great to be here. So let's start about uh, rural Maine. You are a true New Englander. Then there's, there's not a lot of people that can say that. Most of us who live in New England, like myself now, aren't true New Englanders. We've kind of populated this beautiful part of the country. Hopefully we haven't ruined it, but you are. So talk to us about Maine. That's where you grew up. It's kind of a mysterious place for most of the people in the United States. Northern coastal Maine, so closer to um, Canada. And it was a real rustic upbringing. So I didn't have heat in my room until I went to college. So we heated solely with wood, with wood, wood stove heat. Um, and I remember waking up with my glass of water with a rim of ice over the top of it. <laughs> wow. Uh, so it was definitely um, a rugged lifestyle, but amazing. Um, my parents were both highly educated and my mom's from Maine, grew up on a farm in Maine. And my dad's actually from inner city Bronx, New York. Um, but they both found education as a means to bettering their lives. And I feel very lucky that I was raised in a place that was super safe and I could just be out enjoying the amazing landscape that that is um, coastal Maine. Now you have one brother, is that correct? Yes, one brother. I actually was just on the phone with him this morning. Um, he's two years older than I am. And you two did a little bit of uh, wandering and talk us about childhood with your brother, with the two of you in Maine. Yeah, you know, they, I think they've coined the term free range childhood now. Um, back then, it was just <laughs> that was just the norm. 
like your mom had a bell and she would just ring the bell when it was time to eat. But other than that, you were just out. We were either down by the ocean or we were going through the woods. We were really into like making traps for ourselves and each you know, out, out in the woods. We tried to make a zip line, which, you know, most of these exploits ended badly, um, which, you know, you have a lot of scars to prove it. But at the same time, um, there was a lot of trial and error and joy um, of, of just exploration and getting up into you know, harmless mischief. How much older or younger is your brother? He's two years older than I am. Oh, so were you the guinea pig for a lot of these trials and errors? Yes, yes. There were there were several dares. Um, we had another uh, a friend in the neighborhood who was about my brother's age, and and so I'd just tag along with them. And we had the saying that if you started it, you could not go against it. And strangely enough, I use it to this day. Um, I'm ready, I'm willing, and I'm going to. And as soon as you started to say the I'm ready part, you had to follow through and I've never broken it. (laughs) (laughs) I use it today to jump into very cold water. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything but very cold water in Maine? (laughs) That's actually a really good point. Uh, Yes, you know, sometimes the lakes do warm up in August, but... If you're if you're swimming in the ocean in Maine, which was kind of our childhood, you were just you'd come out when your lips turn blue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the wood burning stove. When I worked for Dartmouth, I had a house uh, on a hill as a big tree nursery, and I heated with a wood burning stove. And it took me a long time to figure out how to stoke it the night before, and then get your house nice and warm, and get all the logs in. And then at five o'clock in the morning, wake up, sprint, toss in logs and dive back under the bed until it warmed up again. Uh, There's a and that's when I was explaining that to my mother. And that's when she explained the thing, the uh, the saying three dog night, three dog night wasn't a band. It was a band when I was a kid, but it's the tent was so cold for the shepherds. They bring three dogs into the tent. So I needed an extra dog. Totally. The one black lab wasn't enough back then, right? <laughs> no, no, it was not. And he didn't want to get in bed with me anyways. Thank goodness. Yeah. So he was big, he was a big dog. So tell us about teaching. How did you get interested in teaching? Because your mom? Yes, my mom. Actually, my mom is such an inspiration to me. So back when she was in school, she actually was um, in phys ed. So she went to school. I think she was the only female graduate in her phys ed program back then. That just wasn't something women did. And she went on to be a phys ed teacher in five different schools. So she just went to each school within the district, um, a different school every day. And so she educated every single child in the entire district, kindergarten through eighth grade um, for 10 years. And to this day, people still, when they meet me, you're Mrs. McCann's daughter. She was my favorite teacher. Uh, She was beloved. And she went on to become a fourth grade teacher and then a curriculum coordinator and then a school principal. Um, And she was actually a teacher, runner up for teacher of the year in our entire state. Like she was extraordinary. And still is. (laughs) Yeah, you're blessed to have both your parents still alive, right? 
Yes, very lucky. And my dad turns 90 tomorrow, and he is the child of Irish immigrant parents with limited education. Uh, he was grew up very, very poor. His dad was tragically killed when he was 10. So his mom worked many jobs to support he and his sister. And she wanted desperately for him to get an education. She knew the value of education and how that would open doors for him. My dad was a bit of a rabble rouser growing up in the inner city, New York. And so he just wanted to play hooky and run around. So she actually befriended the um, the local truancy officer who was also Irish. And she gave him a key to their house and said, can you make sure Jackie gets to school? And he wow. would key in and wake my dad up and get him to school because she was working. She yeah. was working these low wage jobs to support them. And my dad is an optometrist. Wow, like that's he went on to be a doctor. It was absolutely amazing. So I always feel like this sense of gratitude for that lineage of these really strong women because my mom's um, mom also raised them alone. Her husband died when my mom was 12 and she had eight children and she raised them all on a teacher's salary. So it's pretty, wow. pretty amazing that the doorways that can open through education. So obviously I'm, I'm a real believer in the American dream in that regard. Well, you've got a, two great examples of strong women as role models for you as well as you've grown up. Now, your dad is also an outdoorsman. Is that right? A, a outdoorsman from not the- my dad, my mom. <laughs> your mom. Your dad's not yeah, an outdoorsman. My, my mom is the one, if there's a bear in the yard, my mom is going to go out and scare the bear away. If there's a, a tree that needs to be felled, my mom is going to fire up her chainsaw. Um, it was actually my mom's brothers who would take us camping and fishing. So my dad okay. is, he's a, still a Bronx boy at heart. Like his idea of wildlife okay. is watching the birds like through the window. <laughs> Dude, I was struggling with that. I didn't understand how a Bronx guy was a true outdoorsman. I hadn't figured that one out. So I'm, I, my notes are wrong. I apologize. That's no, great. So how did you get involved with Compsi based education? What sparked your interest there? Hmm. Um, I stumbled into it. Uh, my, so I went to college, graduated, um, with honors and immediately moved into a hut that I dug in the earth and did survival skills for years. So I was kind of non-traditional into education. I needed to get out of the cerebral and into the physical for a while. And then through that, I really felt like I wanted to live with Native people in the United States who were still actively part of their heritage. And that's what took me to Alaska. So Alaska is one of the few last bastions of, you know, Native folks who are still, you know, practicing some of the old ways. So I ended up in the Bering Strait School District, and it is... Um, 15 different schools, um, massive um, separation amongst them. So it's like the the area is like Minnesota, um, but it's 15 native villages that are scattered all over. And my village was um, on an island about 35 miles from the Russian coast. And it is home to about 1,200 Siberian Yupik native Alaskans. And they speak Siberian Yupik as their first language. They are a whaling culture. So they go out in these 16-foot boats and hand harpoon whales. Um, so that's where I ended up. And it just so happened that we were one of the first in the nation to implement 
full competency-based education. That is maybe the most unique background I've ever heard of. First of all, starting by living in the dirt hut that you dug for two years, and then going as far away from Maine, but finding the only place that's colder than Maine, into Alaska. Well, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So what did you learn from these kids and these people? What, what did you take home and what brought you back to the East Coast? So it is the largest island you've never heard of. Um, and St. Lawrence Island is tundra, so there aren't any trees. It ices in. So if you happen to watch, say, Deadliest Catch, like we're up in, in the ice pack. Um, and polar bears walk over from the Russian coast. So we didn't have snow days. We had polar bear days where they would call around on the phone chain and say, there's a polar bear in the village. Everyone stay inside. Uh, so that alone was just such an amazing edge experience that just the it's so raw. It's so rugged out there. It, it just blows your mind. You can't believe people have existed there for thousands of years. And, you know, these people have been eking out an existence on this island and that in itself kind of allowed for their language and culture to be preserved. So to be with a native population that still speaks primarily their original languages was really special to me. So I tried to work on my language skills. Um, they told me I didn't I didn't have a broken in throat because it's a very guttural language. Um, but we ended up having a lot of kinship around the survival stuff. So like I had a reindeer hide wrapped in my classroom. The kids, we brain tanned it with seal brains. I was part of the old ways. So they loved that. They wanted that for their kids. Um, so it opened a lot of doorways to me. The other thing that we were struggling with is, you know, we were a district in crisis. We had 3% kids reading on grade level. We wanted something different for our students. We knew that there were a lot of closed doors for them. So we knew we had to change the way we did things. And, you know, you, when you talk about that moral purpose, that kind of like burning platform, we just had it in spades in this district. And it made us look at things differently to say, okay, what are the structural changes that need to happen in education so that we can meet the needs of these children? And leveling kids according to where they are in their learning made a lot more sense than placing kids with vastly different abilities all together in one classroom simply because of their age. It did not make sense. Right. So we fully leveled. Like I had a group of fourth level math students that ranged in ages, but were all ready for the content I was teaching. I can't tell you, Jeff, what that was. It was like a miracle as a teacher to be like, you have all the prerequisite skills. I can just deploy this content and you're with me. I don't have to be all over the place trying to meet 25 different needs in this classroom because you all are ready for this content. And what we found was that they made massive progress. Nothing changed in terms of our insane truancy rates and the struggles that kids were facing. We changed the way we did things. We worked smarter, not harder. And kids made up. They made up. So we ended up moving, we got 30% growth in three years. Wow. It was wow. extraordinary. It was incredibly difficult, meaningful, 
work. And that to me, it changed my life. Absolutely changed my life as an educator. I questioned things that I had never questioned before. Like the actual foundational structure of how we group kids, of how we grade kids. I had never thought about it, which sounds crazy (laughs) being a career educator, but it was like dreaming of doing something different better was unheard of. Yeah. So why are we still trying to, why do we think this is still revolutionary or, or a far away vision? Because there's more and more evidence of what the work that you've done and other educators have done is the right work because the achievement gap that we all saw grow massively at the end of COVID during COVID, it gets eliminated with things like this, right? Yes. I, I have still the spark, still the hope, but I've been in this for a long time now. And Making this, Bob calls it second order change, right? It's so difficult. You have to get 80% commitment. You have to move minds and hearts. It's not just a simple, you know, back the truck up and drop the books off and start on page one. It's like foundational, the way our thinking is, the way we schedule, the way we I mean, busing, special areas, there's so many things that determine a schedule currently that make it very difficult to do these shifts. Um, But I still believe in it Mm -hmm. because I've seen it work for kids firsthand and work for some of our most marginalized populations of students. So I... I'm a little more like realistic, I guess, over over the many years I've been doing this. But I think anything this important is worth this fight. Are you still optimistic besides realistic? Yes. And what I see is when you do this change, something happens to the kids and the teachers that truly embrace it. It is like, you cannot put that genie back in the bottle. And there is nothing more powerful than a very young child truly owning their learning. And for me, it's the personalized piece of CBE that I am. I'm about student agency. That is, I feel like that is my educational purpose in life is to build student agency in children. And I have seen kids as young as four totally own their learning, understand exactly what the expectations are, have a voice in how they're going to show what that is, be a part of this process instead of just sitting there having education done to them. That's what we need in this world. We need kids who take initiative. We need kids that... That passivity does not serve them. And I want every kid to have all the doors open for them, not just the luck of the draw. So with the rapid uh, 
influence that artificial intelligence is now having in education. Um, and it, I mean, I read a lot of news feeds and it changes daily. Um, you know, it's, it's the best example I ever, I've read so far was Thomas Friedman called it uh, nuclear. Uh, nuclear energy can power the world. It can energize the world. It can be the source for the world or it can blow up the world. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out about artificial intelligence. Where do you think AI plays in education with CompC-based education? Because it seems to me like it's going to become more personalized. It has to become more personalized with where we're going with AI. And if you if you read what Khan is talking about, what his new product is, it's exactly that. It's an individualized tutor for each kid. I think there's, again, there's massive potential. What we hear about is the, you know, the cheating side, right? That's the fear where people are like, oh, well, you're going to have AI write your papers for you. And it's like, well, maybe we need to rethink assessment. Maybe we need to rethink if somebody can Google the answer to something. Is that really how we should be assessing? So for me, I think back on like when Doug and I taught in the one room schoolhouse off the coast in Maine, we had kindergarten through eighth grade. And so much of what we did was student led projects. And that initiative made them, their buy-in was so high, their commitment to what they were doing was so high and there was no formulaic answer. And they were with us doing it. So for me, I've never been a huge homework person. I'm a person who's like, we learn together. If you can do the the menial stuff on the side, like in an easy way, fine. But when we get together, let's learn deeply in a new way that you're not going to find on your phone. You know, that to me is... I want them to want it. And so what do they want? (laughs) And I think that it helps to breed more authenticity. So that drives me to not be fearful of the AI component, but to be like, okay, well, how can the kids use this to their betterment? Like let's Mm -hmm. embrace it in a way that's going to foster even more and deeper learning and experiences. And do you think it'll propel CompC-based education or just parallel what we're doing now? I mean, honestly, like think back, like in college, if you could have tested out of classes because you already had these skills, why wouldn't we have had that, right? Why wouldn't we have gotten credit for what we already knew instead of just the seat time of, right. I just got to sit here, Right. I got to do the busy work because I've got to get my paper. All levels of education should meet us where we are. If you're a good golfer and you hire a golf pro to coach you, they are going to give you such specific targeted feedback based exactly on what you need right now in this moment. Why shouldn't we be doing that? all the time with kids, right? And how, and why couldn't we use AI to support that? But also through real relationships. Right. Yeah. Through real relationships. Everything's not going to be done with a computer. And it shouldn't be. No. 
we should leverage tech to better experiences, mm-hmm. but we have an epidemic of loneliness in this country right now. So when we go away from each other, it, it's, it harms us, right? So when I'm away from my students as a teacher, it doesn't feel as good as when we're together. So building that relationship so we have the best possible experience together, I think is, I mean, that's, that's what makes those long-term impacts. Like, I bet you remember, you remember on your hand, the teachers that did that for you. Oh, sure. Sure. I actually just wrote a note. I found my uh, math teacher in high school, who was my favorite teacher, a guy named Lowell Barker. I Googled him. I found him at a retirement home just outside of Orlando. And I sent him a note and a copy of our catalog that has the math books in it. And I said, you know, Mr. Barker, I'm the last kid you thought would ever publish a math book, but I thought I'd share that you were my favorite teacher and send it off to him. I don't know. Hopefully I'll hear from him. We'll see. Yeah. I we'll see. love that. Yeah. He's 90, oh. years, 90 years old in a retirement community outside of Orlando. So it's cool. cool. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So let's talk about something that's out of the norm of the average human being. Okay. You are now my second most, I have a brother-in-law who's a a very well-known TV and movie guy, Um, but you're now my second most well-known television celebrity. Uh, You've been on the show alone twice. The first one was season eight uh, on the shores of, how do you pronounce it? Chilco Lake, British Columbia. All right. Talk to us about your, you've been on this twice. I'm asking you to explain both episodes to us. And what your experience was like, let everybody understand what it's actually like to be on one of these alone and how real they actually are. Oh, yeah. Um, So I mentioned kind of my strange segue into survival back after I graduated from college and moved into my hut. Um, I did. By survival, really, I'm, I'm talking about indigenous skills that have been passed down for millennia. Um, So making fire by friction, like the rubbing two sticks together is not meant to be a joke. That's literally how you make fire um, in many different ways. Um, Primitive trapping, flint napping, stone, spear tips, uh, shelter building. So some of it is functionality of oh, wow, my plane crashed. I need to survive in the wilderness. What are the things I need to do to make it through this night? Then there's also the long-term, what does a quality basket look like when you've made it from materials you've gathered? So there's both the sheer like raw practicality but then there's also the the beauty and the craftsmanship when you go into a museum and you see artifacts that native people have made all over the world it is absolutely stunning we refer to them as primitive skills but when you see that it does not feel primitive at all it means it's primitive materials but these folks are extraordinary um, 
So I take a lot of inspiration from that. And also with the closeness with nature, like, you know how that feels when you are alone in the woods, something happens, something happens that I think is important for, for us to experience a closeness with the natural world. When you're with others, it's also powerful, but different. Um, and so when I want to seek solace and, and feel like invigorated and refreshed, just being out in nature for a short amount of time is, is really fits the bill for me. And I was traveling, actually working for Marzano and because I don't have TV. So <laughs> I never, Doug and I have been married for 17 years and we've never had it. We we, we've never actually had TV. We, we get a little Netflix, but um, so I'm traveling and I was look, watching TV in the hotel and I saw the first season of Alone. And there's been other survival shows and I've never had any interest but this one. I was like that I could do or I'd want to do. <laughs> I didn't think I was under no illusion that this would be an easy thing. And I also did not think there was a chance I was going to be chosen for this. Right. I sent the email and they never responded years passed. And then I was teaching third grade and I got an email from a casting agent. She had pulled it from, as you know, the slush pile in publishing, right? They <laughs> right. don't throw away these applications. And she's like, hey, you know, I've read through your application and you, people like you do quite well in the show because you've lived long term. Right. Like you've you've done the living part in the wilderness. And uh, yeah, so I was picked. They said there's like 35,000 applicants and you go through a rigorous process of of them checking your skills and, you know, psych psychologically as well. <laughs> There's a lot of that, you know, <laughs> um, and all of the legalese that goes with it, as I'm sure you're aware. And then um, I was picked uh, one of the 10. It's a, they launch 10 people into the wilderness and drop them in this remote area by themselves. You do all of your own filming. They have a GPS tracker that you carry with you. So they are aware of where you are. So you are relegated to a certain area. And if you go beyond your boundary, you will get a, a little warning on your, we call it the yellow brick. We'll warn you, you've gone beyond your area. Um, but yeah, so it was on Choco Lake and the native folks there have lived there since time immemorial. And they were gracious enough to let us um, deploy during the middle of the pandemic on that land. And it was so hard and so beautiful. I would wake up just ravaged. My body was just so, it's just so physical. But I would wake up every morning and I would walk down to the lake and I would watch the sunrise between these two snow-capped peaks across the lake. And I just felt like the luckiest person in the world. It was uh, indescribable. Well, I have a quote from you that, uh, that you said about the first episode. You said, I got beat to hell out there. I was pretty <laughs> ravaged. My whole body was covered in bruises. I lost 22 pounds from my already tiny body. I was having physical symptoms that were sketchy. 
My blood wasn't clotting. I was blacking out more and more frequently for longer and longer periods. I was having chest pains. So yeah, I felt like I might've been able to squeeze out a few more days, but at what cost? Yeah, right, right. You, I made a promise to myself and I would not do anything that would endanger my long-term welfare. Mm -hmm. And there are people you have, everyone has a line and my line was there. Somebody else's line might be different. For me, I knew it was the right thing, but it didn't mean I wasn't heartbroken to leave. Right. And so when they asked me again, I immediately said yes, which sounds insane, like <laughs> an insane person. I, yes, it does. I just, I wanted to do it, Jeff. I wanted to have the experience. I wanted to shoot things with my bow. I wanted to feed myself. I wanted to snare hair. I wanted to have all the things happen because our season was referred to as the starvation season because there just wasn't a lot of game. And not that I'm making excuses. I had a lot of failures. I could have done things better, right? But at the same time, I, I couldn't afford to sit on my weight. I have no weight to sit on. I went in with a BMI of 20 and that's pushing it for me. I gained 10 pounds. That's a lot for me. But when you weigh 120 going in, right. like I can't compete with somebody who weighs 300 pounds who gained my entire person for the show, like bless them that they can do it. But that's just not how I'm wired, you know? So the second time around, I chose to bring up you can choose rations. So you get 10 items. And I chose a small portion of rations. It's like two and a half pounds. And that to me, like, it's nothing calorie wise, but it's just enough to take the edge off if you haven't eaten anything all day. So that was a choice I made. But also the place, like I was sent to Labrador, we were helicoptered in, and I was dropped off on the Labrador beach. And I immediately saw clamshells. I'm like, this is my wheelhouse. <laughs> I was like, I've been clamming since I was a kid. I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be amazing. So I ate thousands, thousands of clams and mussels. And on that season, I came in second. How long were you there? How long were you on that river? About 40 days, I think it was. It was a 50-day challenge. So it was, yeah, 40 days. I was like a 50-day a challenge. So we had six returnees. Right. And um, 30, 38, maybe it was 38. It was around 40 days. And um, I lost 30 pounds. I came out of it like 90 pounds. Um, I injured my eyes. And that was what ultimately led to me leaving. But looking back on it, I mean, I was so tiny that when they came and did my med check, I don't know if they would have left me out there. Yeah. Like, you know, they, they, they'll yank you because of weight. Sure. and. That's legitimate. That's legitimate. Bad publicity to have so, somebody in intensive so, care. Yeah, it took it took um six months to get back to my normal size. Wow, that is impressive. And that was uh, so that was alone frozen, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna put the I'm gonna put the episodes on the email when this goes out or on the link so people can go watch them. So that would be great. <laughs> All right. So I got to ask. Is there a third one? Are you going to call yourself a silver medalist and be done with your Olympics here? 
You know, I help out with the show. So um, it's not like it's not a part of my life. Um, And I can imagine being a support system in some capacity, but I don't think I could put my body through that again. Well, thank you for that. We all appreciate having you here. (laughs) My mom. Yeah. (laughs) My poor mother. Oh my gosh. She sat in my lap while we watched. I'm like, mom, I'm here. I'm okay. You're holding me while we're watching this. She's like, I know what even it's like, I just can't stand it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. This has been absolutely fascinating. This has been so much fun. This may be the best, best talk I've had yet. This is great. Do you have social media where people can follow you? Do you do that? I don't do that. I didn't think you did. That's why I did. I looked and I thought, she's not out there. She doesn't have a TV. She doesn't do social. You're like the coolest person I know. I think we all want to be like you. Well, you're the same. Like when you think about like, you would like to be at your farmhouse in Vermont. Right. Right. Like yep. your heart, your heart is in the wild places and the quiet times. And that's how I am too. That's how we stay who we are and stay grounded. And I think it's important to have a good balance. So I bought a Rivian pickup truck or the electric pickup trucks. And the whole purpose is to rig it up for camping. And I love to fly fish, camping and fly fishing. But I fear about what happens when you run out of battery chargers in your Adirondacks. So I bought a gas generator to put in the back of the trucks. Come on now. (laughs) It seems to be anti-camping to have a chart that generated a charger truck, but it's going to work for me until they figure out something better. Right. Oh, that's so cool. What's your, what's your favorite place to fish? Uh, I tell you what I've done recently. I went bone fishing. Uh, which was so much fun. I would uh, we take an annual vacation every year to Turks and Caicos with some friends, and I went bone fishing there, and had a blast. And I had never gone fly fishing for bone fish, so that's oh. great. Um, and it's and uh, anyways, we should probably end this episode because okay. we could talk about this forever. But I'm going to see you at the Marzano Associate Retreat, and we will talk about this. Wonderful! I would love to. All right, I'm Michelle. See you. It's been great to see you. We get to see each other on Zoom while we record this. So thank you very much. Tell Doug I said hello. I know he's out there working on your on your uh, edition. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. 